Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is another awesome episode of Blood, Fear, and Beer. My name's Greg. My name's Alicia. We got beer. We got horror. We're ready to talk about it. We're so ready. And I'm so ready to try a beer for the first time in a long time. A quart of beer. Yeah, we're sharing a beer this time, which we haven't done on the podcast yet because our beer tastes vastly differ. But we are sharing a quart of beer. I didn't know it came in quarts. It comes in quarts. It comes in quarts. This came from friends of ours, Rock and Katarina. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. This is Mississippi Mud. It is a black and tan porter and pilsner beer. Nice. It's got like the cool old fashioned, it literally has like the jug handle and everything. Yeah. And it's got an alligator on it. And even though it says Mississippi Mud, it's brewed in Utica, New York. Nice. Who knows why? So I remember drinking these back in high school. I remember seeing you drink those. Because they were cheap and they were good. And I haven't had one since. But I still think they're going to hold up because it, it smells, smells delicious. Yeah, it smells awesome. And I didn't realize that it was a Pilsner and a Porter. For some reason, I thought it was an IPA with a Porter. So now I'm really looking forward to trying it. Should we try it together? Let's do it. Let's do it. Cheers. Cheers. They're so full. Yeah, it tastes like a, a brown. It, it's exactly what I thought it was going to taste like. It looks like a brown. It tastes like a brown. It tastes just fine. Yeah. It's fine. It's not extraordinary. It's a brown. It's a brown. Browns are just kind of, you know... Let go. Yeah. It just, you know what it tastes like? Beer. It tastes like beer. It tastes, it tastes like a nice pub beer. Yeah. Like it's something you might get at Oktoberfest or something. Or just in England. I've never been to England, but I imagine this would be in their pub. Yeah. yeah. Apparently it's from the black and tan. That's funny because I just read that. Maybe that's why it's in my head. But it says, because you know how much I love to read the back of my beer bottle. Yeah. That. <laughs> that one looks like it has a lot going on back there. It does. That uh, it was back in 18th century England, the custom of blending pale and dark year, uh, beers together, and they were called black and tans. Nice. I haven't had a black and tan in, I want to say, almost a decade. I don't think I've had one since I first started getting into beer, and I just, I loved ordering those. I thought it was so cool. Yeah, I, I think probably for me, this was the last one I had back in high school, because I've never been a big fan of them, I guess. Well, you're not really into the porters and the dark beers very much well i liked i got into a big porter phase for a while and i got into a stout phase for a while really yeah that's so hard to imagine well that was kind of my initial uh sojourn <laughs> into the craft beer world i've said it before but it was essentially with arrogant bastard and then that got me down the dark beer path i feel like quite literally it seems counterintuitive because they look so intimidating but for somebody who's looking to get into beer, I think that dark beer is a great place to start. I agree. Not Arrogant Bastard, but Dude. not that one. That will turn you off beer for life if you're not one of the lucky ones. But like stouts and porters, that's a great beer to start somebody off on. I, yeah, it looks way more intimidating. It's like... Uh, it's super smooth and malty and just... It's like those really big beefed up dudes that look like they're just going to kill everything in their path and then they're just... Big teddy bears. Yeah. That's what stouts are. That is exactly what stouts are. I love them. Mm, it's really nice to enjoy some beer right now. It's been a while really nice. for you. It's been a long time. Yeah. A couple months. I've had a sip here and there, but I haven't really been able to tolerate the beer lately. Let's hope this one doesn't kill me. Let's hope. <laughs> and if it does, at least it's Friday. So. Yeah. If you guys hear a thud, you know what happened. It wasn't me. All right. So tonight we are talking about the man, the legend, 
Guillermo del Toro. You add myth to this. Oh, the and the myth. Is he a myth though? Yeah. Okay. That's like the whole thing, and, and like his whole. That's his thing specialty, is, right? And he's in the myths and everything, and he neglected that part of I'm it. I'm so sorry. I should have let you do it. Quite all right. The man, the myth, the legend. The legend, Guillermo del Toro. The one and only. The one and only. He's so amazing. He's pretty, pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. I really think of him as just a master storyteller. That's exactly what he is. And he's an authentic storyteller. Yes. I think that's one of the things I most respect about Guillermo. That he just does exactly what he wants to do. He does what do. he wants to do. Yeah. I think that's what makes his work so appealing. Absolutely, to me. Yeah. And then even in movies that most people would consider like a trashy movie or not worth the time and effort to put into it. Yeah. You know, he goes 100% and puts everything he has into it. Yes, he really does. And I feel like some of his movies more than others, if any other director had attempted them, I just don't think it would work. And I mean, that's on the lighter side of things. I think certain ones, like I'll say The Shape of Water, I feel like if that had been anybody else's hands, it could have easily been a disaster. Would have. Would have. Yeah, I was trying to be generous, but it would have been a disaster. I agree. Yeah. I feel like a lot of those movies are like that. Yeah. If someone else had tried to do done that. Not all of them. I think there's... But it's hard to say that because he writes all his movies. Yeah. You know, so who else would fucking do it? Yeah, they're all original for the most part. Yeah. I'm not... I, I didn't go through this whole chronological list, but off the top of my head, all of the movies that I can think of, he wrote... And everything I've seen by him, there was a brief period of time in like the early to mid 2000s where he was kind of getting a bad rap as a director because his name was tied to so many movies that like bad movies that were coming out and his name would be on it, but he didn't actually direct those movies that were coming out. He was a producer or involved in some other way. And I remember like knowing a lot of people who knew of him as a guy who directs a bunch of shitty movies and they didn't realize that he didn't actually direct any of those. But everything that I've seen that he has actually written and directed has just been incredible. Yeah, I think that's one of those things that I, I still fall for that sometimes because I'm not listening and you'll think that it was directed by somebody yeah. but it was just produced by them. You know, like I feel like uh, we did that recently with Race by Wolves, the show. Oh, right. You know, because yeah. they kept on flashing... Ridley Scott. You know, he he had, like, directed the first episode or so, but it was sold as, or at least it was conveyed in a way that was misleading to me when I was l listening and watching the previews for it, that, like, this was his show. Yeah, I thought when so, too. he really just produced it, and I think he had, obviously, he did, like, some directing, but I don't think he did any other writing for it. But they do that kind of shit all the time. They're so yeah. sneaky with that. Tim Burton, they do that with Tim Burton all the time. Oh, yeah. That's why people think that he directed uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. I thought he directed, up until like a, a month or two ago, actually, Batman Forever. See? And he didn't. My whole life, I thought. <laughs> <he did>. <laughs> people are like dropping their beers in shock right now. What? He didn't. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. Never happened. So watching this movie had me thinking... Because, you know, you see in this movie just the, what I think of as like the seeds of Del Toro's greatness and the beginnings of his signature style. He's so good at taking concepts or ideas, mostly fairy tales, that 
can really be overdone and tired, and he completely just breathes new life into them. So I started thinking about, I know he has some upcoming projects, or one in particular that we're really excited about, the Pinocchio movie, but I just started kind of daydreaming about projects that I would love to see him take on, or stories that I would love to see from his perspective, and I made a list of those, and I'm really curious to see what you came up with, like what you would love to see Guillermo del Toro take on. Cool. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty neat idea. I do have to say, speaking of him being able to put a fresh perspective on something that's been done before, Mm -hmm. I was reading an article and the way they put it, I felt was pretty succinct, but it was essentially that he's able to take, you know, tired cliches and make something original out of them without being pretentious or forced yeah you know it's just authentically and organically a unique perspective on something that is so tired i think the words that you just used authentic organic and unique are just the perfect words (laughs) to describe his work thank you (laughs) (laughs) really like that's nailed it that's the experience every time i watch one of his original movies it feels authentic organic and unique and they always have just so much heart i agree i said that yeah (laughs) i said (laughs) all right so we're talking about fairy tales huh it doesn't have to be just fairy tales just any story that you would love to see him take on okay well i was going down this list and we're trying to develop this list. And I know that you actually have done more. I've never read the Grimm fairy tales or any of that kind of stuff before the Grimm brother fairy tales. And I just, I don't know that many fairy tales, to be honest. So I had to rely on looking up creepy fairy tales. Okay. And then cool. seeing which ones seem pretty cool. Yeah. Based on a quick synopsis. Now, some of them are pretty right out of the gate. You want to go back and forth on this? Want to ping pong? Yeah, we can ping pong. Okay. I, I have most of mine aren't actually fairy tales, but I do have some fairy tales on there. So I'm interested to see if there's going to be some overlap. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I, you know, just going down the list, no particular order. First one I wrote down, Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yeah. I think he could rock that. Oh, for sure. There were some... I almost wrote that one down, but the only reason I didn't was because I know that there were some elements in The Shape of Water that like reminded people of Beauty and the Beast, but I think he would absolutely nail that. Yeah. And there was actually a series... I heard it was super bizarre, and a lot of people didn't like it, but there was a series in the 80s, and it was a Beauty and the Beast show, and Ron Perlman actually played the Beast. Oh, perfect. So that would be perfect. <laughs> I love that. Nice. <laughs> it's a good pick. Okay, so the first one that I wrote down, and this one is a fairy tale, uh, I would love to see his take on Little Red Riding Hood. Nice, I, think, I have that on my list too. I think that would be badass, especially because he is so good at writing not just female characters, but young girls in particular. And I would really like to see his take on that story. Yeah, on the ones that I wrote down, I think that, and there's three in particular that I would really like to see him do. That is one of them, for sure. Yeah, same. So, I think the one that I... I know this sounds weird, but it is one of my favorite stories, is Peter and the Wolf. Oh my gosh, I didn't even think of that. That would be awesome. I just... Ever since I was a kid, there was this... You know this, I've told you so many fucking times. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go, let's hear it. (laughs) Tell me about it. (laughs) There was this Disney trilogy... Of tapes. It was three different tapes. Mm -hmm. And it was Peter and the Wolf. It was 
Willie the Operatic Whale. <laughs> I remember Willie. And then it was the, what was called, I think it was called the, the Music Symphony or something like that. Oh, you showed me that one. Yeah. I showed you. It's weird and creepy. Yeah. But super I loved, creepy. <laughs> they were all super unique. And to my mind's eye as a kid, and even looking at it now, was very much not the Disney movies I was used to seeing or Disney stories. Yeah. You know, obviously the the artwork was there and the music aspect of it. But other than that, it was nothing like any of the, the Prentice stuff or those kind of story so the music one was about basically you had the the brass instruments and the wood instruments and it was the two different kingdoms and it was kind of like a romeo and juliet situation where they weren't supposed to cross paths and interact with each other but then like the prince of one and the princess of other fell in love with each other and then the two kingdoms went to war and so you had the the wood instruments and the brass instruments going to war with each other. And it was just all so musical, obviously. Yeah. And that was one of my favorite things about the old cartoons was just like the orchestra and the music and how much artistry went into that aspect of the cartoons. Yeah. And then Peter and the Wolf was another one of those where it was just so heavily... Every single one of those was so heavily founded in the music of the story. Like the music was the story with carried along. That may be a lot of the reason why many of you like got into music in the first place. Now that I think about it, I wouldn't it was be surprised. So strongly yeah. influenced by it. Yeah. But Peter and the Wolf was by far my favorite of the three of those. And it is something that I can imagine Guillermo doing and putting like a really fucking cool twist on. His movies also have really memorable scores exactly. soundtracks. So I think that'd be great. Would you want to see it as like a an animated movie, like stop motion or or would you want to see a live action version of it? I think maybe a, a stop action would be pretty neat. Stop motion? Stop motion. Yeah, I think that's a great pick. He also did um I watched it not too long ago. I don't remember if we watched it together or if you were just in the vicinity when I was watching it, but there was that Edgar Allan Poe special on Netflix and it had the four different animated takes on uh, different Poe stories and Guillermo del Toro did one of them. I don't remember which one he did. Oh, cool. But it was really cool. Did you see that? Or... I think I was in the vicinity. Okay, because I, I don't remember the other three being super memorable and I honestly don't remember which one he did, but the Mask of the Red Death one was awesome. Oh, I want to watch that. It's, it's might, really cool. I think you might have started it for me. I'm not sure if I finished it because I think I saw you watching it and okay. I was like, this looks fun. Yeah, it was really cool. Very cool. I feel like, and I, I got that impression from this movie especially, he's got to be a huge Poe fan. Who isn't? Who isn't? What do you got? I also have, and I don't remember this story fully. It's another fairy tale. I just remember it being already kind of dark as most of the collections and Grimm's fairy tales are. Uh, Rumpelstiltskin. Nice. I have that on my list. Too. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> nice. I think he would make something so dark and fucked up. Because <laughs> it's already a messed that's up story. Thing. That's like one of the most messed up fairy tales to me. <laughs> I, I loved it when I was a kid. I had this uh, this VHS tape that had a bunch of the Grimm's fairy tales on it. I don't remember what it was, but the Rumpelstiltskin one, I remember being just really fucked up and I loved it. So do you remember how it ends? No. No? Do you? Did you read I, it? I don't, but I was reading that the way that most people think, or the way it's written in most stories, is not... Well, you know, obviously people do their own adaptations of the Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah. But that one in particular is supposed to have a much more gruesome ending than... 
I, don't, I think has ever really been told in the mainstream. I think most of them do. And so the way that it's supposed to end, or the way that it ends in the Grim Fairy Tales at least, is that for those of you don't, that don't know, I'll just do a real quick recap. This chick's father says that uh, she can spin gold. Yeah, like she can spin, spin like straw into gold. Right? Straw into gold, right? Yeah. And so basically to like sell her to this king in a way, like marry her off and get wealthy. Yeah. Um, which he does. And then she's about to get found out by the king that she can't do this and it's like going to be all fucked. So all of a sudden this tiny man shows up and grants her, like says that he can spend gold for her, but in exchange for something. So the first two times it's for something relatively minor. Like I think one's for like a lock of her hair or something small, Mm -hmm. like some whatever, you know, a thimble. (laughs) (laughs) But the third thing is that it has to be, she has to give up her firstborn, right? Oh shit. And the only way to get out of this is if she can guess his name. And I think she gets three tries. And long story short, she actually is able to overhear some of the other maids and stuff like that talking about this little man. And she overhears his name. So she cheats. And she she has her first son. And little Rumple shows up to do that <laughs> and claim what's his. And she says his name. And he is so distraught. And the Grimm's fairy tale that he tears himself in two. Well, and I think that would be a really cool. <laughs> oh, I think he could do something really awesome yeah. with that. Yeah, I think Jeremiah would have fun with that. For sure. So what else do you have? I have on here. I'm just going to mention it, even though this is what he's doing. Pinocchio. Oh, hell yeah. I'm I so can't. looking forward I to that. I am pumped for that. I'm so glad that's yeah, back on. Yeah, we had seen this on the peripheral. Years ago. Years ago. And then it got, I don't want to say canceled, but it got indefinitely postponed. But apparently Netflix picked it up and it's supposed to come out this year. Hell yes. I so I'm really looking forward to that. So that's on my list. That is such a messed up story. And it really freaked me out as a kid. Like the Disney version really scared me. And I'm really excited to see somebody who understands it to be a very dark and scary story and will treat it as such. I'm, I'm really excited to see that. Well, Guillermo understands that fairy tales are dark. Yeah. In general. And he also is so good at just finding so much beauty in ugly, dark things. Yes. I'm really excited for that. I don't know what beauty there is in Pinocchio. Maybe he'll play up the character of the good fairy, but who knows? (laughs) I don't remember there being any good fairies in his movies. It may be all dark. Yeah. That's going to be cool. Another one that I have, this one is a Disney movie that I really like. And this was actually my brother's suggestion because I had asked him this question just out of curiosity, what he would like to see. And he said uh, The Black Cauldron. Ooh. I think that would be That's super cool one. with the, the Horned King. Isn't that just would be The so Lord of the It's basically just The Lord of the Rings for kids. I mean, The Lord of the Rings is kind of for kids. I guess The Hobbit is, but yeah, it's The Lord of the Rings. But I'm just, <laughs> I'm just imagining his design of The Horned King and how badass that would be. Nice. It would have to be live action, though. So I have a short. This is a, oh. a little shorty that I wanted to do. Okay. This is also from the Grimms, apparently. Okay. And it was noted just being particularly weird, and nobody really knows what the fuck the deal was. So this is just like a little, like a five-minute vignette that I would like to see him do. Okay. But it's called The Feast, and... I've heard of this. I heard of this It recently. is about two sausages... <laughs> One is a blood sausage, and one is a liver sausage, and they are friends. <laughs> and the blood sausage one day invites the liver sausage over for dinner. The liver sausage 
begins to walk in to his friend's house when he notices that things are a little weird. And he starts to get uneasy when he sees a broom and a shovel fighting and a monkey with a wounded knee. And then he begins to hear whispers. Get out. Get out now. So he runs. And as he's running away, his blood sausage run comes running after him and says, If you would have stayed, I would have got you. <laughs> and that's the end and of the that's story. That's the end of the story. What the fuck? I have no idea. It's so fucking weird. So you would like to see your whole Del Toro's take on the feet. Yes. <laughs> All right. I can dig it. I just want to see him do some weird shit. What are the odds of that? That's so funny. I was listening to, there's a, another horror podcast called Dead and Lovely that I'm a huge fan of. And they were talking about, um, I can't remember which movie they were talking about, but they were talking about fairy tales, Grimm's fairy tales specifically, and like the weirdest ones. And they mentioned that. And I was like, what the fuck? Well, that's one of the <laughs> And I had heard ones. it like last week. Yeah. But it's interesting that it's come up twice in the last week. That always happens. I know. There's so there's like a, a word for it. There's a way to word for it, right? So, But it was coined by a psychologist. It's like observation bias, essentially. Okay. Like when you hear about a thing for the first time, suddenly it's everywhere. Exactly. Just like when you notice, like when you buy a car or you're interested in a car, you then you everywhere. see it everywhere. It's just weird that it's like the blood sausage story. I know. All right. I can dig it. So well, this one is not any specific story, but the next two that I have are based on books that I've read. And one of them, it was called The Blood Confession. And it was a first person point of view from Elizabeth Bathory and like her childhood and growing up. And it, it's basically things told from her perspective. Who is Elizabeth Bathory? <laughs> she was, um, and it, it's, her name is kind of debated. It's It's been told as Elizabeth or Elizabeth. In the book, it's actually Elizabeth. But she was a horrifying serial killer hundreds and hundreds of years ago. I believe she was Hungarian and she was believed to have tortured and killed upwards of five or 600 women. So bad, 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 bad. Bad Yeah. But I think that just based on that book, like there's, I don't want to give too much away, but it goes through her childhood and how her mother was like slowly descending into madness and her father was a warmongering piece of shit. And she had a super kind best friend growing up who kind of kept her teetering on the edge longer than she might have otherwise. And I just knowing how well he depicts like the darkness of childhood and just darkness in general, I think he could make a badass movie out of that. That sounds cool. I want to watch it. It would be so cool. All right. I'm going to do my last one. And I actually just, it was on the spot when you were mentioning just other, I didn't even really think about other stories and stuff for some reason. I'm just focusing on fairy tales. Well, that's a specialty. Yeah. A movie that I watched as a kid that I found enthralling and weird and dark and creepy. Something called Little Nemo. Oh my God. Yes. And I think he could make that, remake that. So cool. Holy shit, yes. Like he I I think he would be all over that. Oh man. If you haven't oh, seen that movie, that. bummer. Bummer. <laughs> <laughs> bummer for you. That would be so cool. It's too late now. Oh, That's man. why it's a bummer. Good pick. Good pick. That would have been cool. Damn. That would be cool. See, I wanted and I feel like you're doing the same thing. I really focused my list on stories that I couldn't really see anybody else pulling off as well as he could. 
or that I would trust the most in his hands. Like, I didn't want to pick a story that anybody could do. Who else could do the feast? Maybe David Lynch. Last <laughs> <laughs> <Les> Claypool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still a good pick, though. <laughs> okay, I have two more. All right. Um, the second Your list is always one. like five times one. I know, I know. I just, I love lists. This one is another book that I read in high school, and I still have them. The first book is called Tithe. The second one, I think, is called... I went. I looked at them today. The second one is called Valiant, and the third one is called Ironside. And it's basically a dark fairy tale. And for me, it was the first time that I was exposed to fairies as dark and fucked up. And it went into super specific detail about the rules and the mythology and just the really dark mischief behind fairies and the the things that they really get up to and like the changeling stuff where they switch out babies and children for fae and things get all fucked up like it was really cool i loved those books cool so i think he could pick any one of those three and just nail it it would be really cool i would love to see that i'm just imagining for that one specifically like the creature design would be off the charts Mm -hmm. that sounds cool My last one, I saved the one that I want the most for last. And this is one that I truly would not trust in the hands of anybody else because the story is so rich and complex. You ready? Ready. Bring it on. Bioshock. Oh. So you don't think there's anyone else we could pull that off? For a movie, no. For a, a full series with multiple seasons, maybe. But for a story that rich and that complex and that gorgeous imagery, I think that he would just go to town with that. And there were some shots of The Shape of Water that reminded me of Bioshock, and that's what kind of planted that seed I can of see wanting that. to see that from yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Oh my god, I think that would be so cool. I would love to see his design of Rapture and the Splicers, and I'm sure he would think of some heart-wrenching storyline for the little sisters and just all kinds of badass stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm there. Um, I'm seeing yeah. it. I'm all over Guillermo that. Guillermo del Toro's Bioshock. <laughs> I would love that. I'll start a petition, people. Yep. Hell yeah. For those of you who don't know what Bioshock is, it's one of, in my opinion, the best video games in existence. Because of the gameplay? Because of the the story and the world building and just the, the entire experience of it. It's amazing. So I'll say I have not gotten through the first Bioshock. It's so good. I've watched you play it a lot. And then I there's... The third one that I played. Bioshock Infinite? Yeah. Amazing. But I will say, because I've seen you play it and I know the story, the story of Bioshock and the set design and everything about it in that way is fucking awesome. Yeah. I do not think it is one of the best video games in gameplay. It's a first-person shooter. You hate first-person games, I know, but it's also like... It's not unique in that capacity. It's a little little bit dated. Well, I mean, not just that. But I think that if you're going to say that something's like the best game ever, you got to give the reason for it. Like some games are really fucking awesome because they're fun to play. Yeah, fair. And yeah. this one is fun to play through. Yeah, this one is like a, that's a good point. This one is not, you know, fun to play like Spyro the Dragon is fun to play gameplay wise. It's just an incredibly immersive experience story wise and a, atmospherically. Yeah. I think it's one of those, to me, I, I don't think at that point... I had seen video games really take on the role of storytelling as in-depth and as cool 
as Bioshock has. Yeah. And then that's kind of a new thing. You have that with Last of Us and some other games that are picking up on making it more about an immersive story Mm -hmm. and experience rather than just some game that you play. Yeah. Like you are in a book and it's... And it's good. Yeah. It's a good <laughs> fucking book. Yeah. We so much that we read the book. <laughs> I would have never thought to read a novelized version of a video game. And it wasn't even the video game. It was like somebody novelized like a prequel of all the events leading up to what happens in Bioshock. Yeah. And we read that and it was good. It was good. Because it's a great story. Yeah. I really want that now. Good pick. Good Thank pick. you. <laughs> never would have thought I was that. sitting on that one just waiting for it. Nicely done. <laughs> I think it'd be great. Thank you. All right. So are you ready? To talk about Kronos? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. So if this is your first time tuning in, you might not be aware of the fact that Greg hates vampires and hates vampire movies. So are you a little bit mad that you accidentally picked a vampire movie? If I'm being totally honest. Yeah. Yeah, I was a little mad. You're a little mad. (laughs) I've said this before. I tried to go into a movie blind. Uh I didn't read the synopsis. I didn't know anything about it other than the fact that it was Guillermo del toro's movie and his first movie that's it that's all i knew yeah it's and a so movie. when we got in and i realized it was <laughs> you're movie, like god damn it <laughs> I, I felt a little a little betrayed and a little ashamed well i think that's terribly funny I, yeah i mean it was <laughs> i had a laugh at myself too what are the odds that i picked a vampire movie i i'm a little bit biased here because i kind of like i with zombies i will kind of defend vampires as a good concept but i think like zombies the things that make vampires such compelling creatures has really gotten lost in the horror genre and i think that even though this concept has been done to death i think for a vampire movie it was really good i also think that Vampires have become so glamorized in movies, not even just horror movies. There's like a bunch of romance stuff and series and <coughs> Twilight. Don't even get me started on Twilight. But this one really gets back to the roots of what vampirism actually is. And it's the idea of vampires being these incredibly grotesque, greedy, and just gluttonous creatures. And like just picturing the scene that we'll, I'm sure we'll go into more detail on where Jesus is lapping blood off of the bathroom floor it was grotesque it was disturbing and it was sad and this movie really captures the tragedy of being i'll say infected with eternal life without romanticizing it yeah well put i will say that besides the fact that it's a vampire movie it actually took me a while and maybe i was just in denial i think i was a little bit denial but it took me a while to actually realize it was a vampire movie and that's what was going on and even with that like we were saying in the beginning he has such a way of taking just a tired old cliche of a story and an idea and making something original with it and it was not like any other vampire movie i had seen it didn't as you said didn't glamorize anything about being a vampire yeah in fact it was so little to do and that's what i really love about his stories is that take shape of water for example mm-hmm. you know you have this fish man thing which should be kind of like the star of this show but that's not what that movie is about right the movie is about this wonderful relationship and just these you know these two creatures that love each other and like this and and the and the friendships involved with it and the evil behind it 
you know, that are trying to oppose yeah. those forces. I'm getting like misty. I just I know, thinking I about that again. goddamn movie. It's reminded me so of that. Much. I think we talked about it before that Pablo Neruda poem. Oh yeah. The uh, poor creatures. Yeah. But that being said with this movie, nothing about this really felt vampire esque. Right. It wasn't about being a vampire, thirsting for blood and yeah. living forever. Like those were just side effects of the story and the circumstances these people were involved in. And they were just as tragic and just as mundane as any other drama. 100%. Yeah. So before we get super deep into it, did you want to just give our listeners a quick recap of what the story of Kronos is? Sure. Essentially, you have this alchemist that has created a mechanical device, as far as anyone knows. That is able to essentially grant internal life. And it was invented in like the 14th century. And then it was lost to time to some degree because this alchemist stayed alive for so long. And then he had an accidental death and his belongings and everything just kind of got put into storage. So nobody knew about this thing, and there were some weird collectors that happened to try to find it. But long story short, there's this device that essentially granted internal life that is around, and nobody really knew about it. And this antique dealer stumbles upon it and has it attached to him or attack him in a way and infect him with eternal life. This movie felt very... I feel like this deserves to be a term, but very Cronenbergian to me. That should be in the dictionary. (laughs) It's at least in the zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah. There were so many moments of this that just reminded me of, or or paid tribute to Cronenberg. And this was after The Fly, correct? Yeah. The Fly was in 86. This was 93. Right. I saw a lot of influences from The Fly here, but it's kind of hard, like you said, to watch any horror movie or any movie that contains elements of body horror without thinking of David Cronenberg. Absolutely. He, he just kind of cornered that market. Yeah. In the same way that Evil Dead cornered radical zombie kills definitely so i'll just ask you straight up i'm gonna be straight with you greg <laughs> raw dog it what is it <laughs> gross <laughs> do you like this movie shit just uh you're not kidding no lube or anything yeah did you like it honestly i did i did too i thought it was good i did it was good. i did like it i love ron perlman i love the duo thing that they got going on ron perlman and guillermo and like i said it was so subcutaneous, the vampire part of it. Yeah. Like, it was irrelevant. So it didn't bother you too much? No, I was I felt a little butthurt, <laughs> you know, that I picked it and it was a vampire <laughs> movie. But that being said, I did like it. I did too. I really enjoyed it. I felt like it had a couple of flaws, but I mean, it was a... We're so used to, especially now, like, debut feature films just knocking it out of the park and being absolutely amazing. And I feel like given what he had to put in to be able to finance this movie and to make it, it was just solid for a debut. You're saying for like a low budget movie? Yeah, for a low budget movie and for a first movie. And like I said before, you could really see just the, like you could see him starting to hone his craft. I totally agree with you. You can very much see the beginning to Guillermo. And it even has some of the characteristics that are, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, like when synonymous with mm-hmm. Guillermo. I, I saw it like put on the list of it has insects and it has clockwork. 
Yeah. And those are two things that are pretty much in every single Guillermo del Toro movie. He seems to be really, really fascinated by time, the concept of time. Time and, and bugs. I think he likes the idea of insects and I'm totally pontificating out the ass on this, <laughs> but I'm thinking about how you mentioned how he's able to bring such beauty out of ugliness. Mm-hmm. And have these movies that are entrenched in darkness and what we find hideous and disgusting. And to illustrate and show us the beauty in things. And to me, again, pontificating out the ass here. That's kind of insects for someone who likes insects. Compared, like most people find them hideous and disgusting. Yeah. And they are actually incredibly beautiful, unique, and amazing creatures to the point where they are biologically 100%, probably quite more than 100% superior to humans. Yeah. And they fixate on the uh, the cockroaches for a while, right. too. And I thought it was neat that the idea or the, the object that grants eternal life was when he broke open this statue that is hiding it. It's filled with cockroaches, which are known for living forever. And it's a statue of an archangel. Right. Yeah, there, there's some really and then it's badass a, it's, a, it's an in insect that's actually, you find out later that inside the Kronos, this device, mm-hmm. is an insect that is feeding off of human blood. Yeah. The blood of the, the person who's going to live forever. Right. And so, again, you have this idea of this alchemist that recognized how long insects live for and it's basically like this symbiotic relationship or at least that's what i get out of it this device is artificially and mechanically creating a symbiotic relationship between the host and the insect that is enslaved in this device that's really cool i feel like the um i didn't catch his name but it was the old man ron perlman's uncle and ron perlman's character's name was angel i think it was angel or angel de la guardia which was right. Guardian Angel. Right. And his uncle said something along the lines of, when he's explaining that this device contains an insect, a living insect, he says something about, like, who says insects aren't God's favorite creatures? Right. Which I thought was really cool. Yeah, and you yeah. mentioned, like, the idea of living for, like, creatures being able to live forever or yeah. being able to be resurrected. And I think like, there's think a about little, an insect yeah. that you can freeze and then thaw out or you can literally smush with your boot and it still keeps on going and especially cockroaches mm-hmm. like a, a running joke but not joke about cockroaches is that they would be the only creatures to survive a nuclear holocaust and i think there's actually a little bit of narration about that specifically about how insects will probably be be here far longer than we are long after we're gone right so what do you make of the name of this movie chronos did it stick out to you yeah, I think that obviously it did because that's why I picked it. And I didn't know. <laughs> obviously, <it was> like... <laughs> Alicia. No, I don't mean it like that. I mean that I picked it not knowing it was <laughs> a vampire movie because it sounded not like a vampire movie. It really sounded like the last thing it was going to be was a fucking vampire movie. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't think about it after watching it, and I really didn't give it that much consideration. But now that you mention it, that's a really good question. And I, I guess the best way that I can answer that is to think about what I thought the movie was going to be about. Oh, okay. I'd like to hear Based this. on the title and based on the HBO cover of that title. 
Okay. You know, I don't know if that's the actual title. But the only thing that I saw was the old man with this mechanical device, like, attached to his chest. And it's called Kronos. That's all I knew about the movie. And so I guess I was thinking that it was going to be more of a sci-fi situation. Oh, okay. And I was thinking that it was some kind of device that either, you know, was, you know, Kronos. I was thinking time. So yeah. I didn't know if it was, like, a time travel thing or made people younger or something like that, you know. Yeah. But I, I thought it was a sci-fi situation and I thought it was something to do with either time travel or the reversal of time or aging or something like that. Yeah, that's really cool. And I guess in a way, besides the sci-fi aspect of it, it was. Right. You know, it was about it was about time and withstanding it, but obviously, as is portrayed accurately, the cost involves with that. Yes, I think the the cost is such a huge part of it, and I the name really stuck out to me because I love Greek mythology and I'm so fascinated by it. And of course, Kronos was a titan. And he was thought of as the god of time, but not just the god of time, like time as a destructive and all-consuming force. And part of the story, or the beginning of the story, involves Kronos devouring all of his children, except for Zeus, who overthrows him later. But there's that painting that I know we both love, the Goya painting, of Saturn devouring his son. Oh, it's one of my favorites. It's we so have cool. To get that we that have house. to get that. It's terrifying. But that's basically... That's a perfect depiction of the essence of Kronos and time is a destructive and all-consuming force. I feel like that he could not have picked a better name for this story. Yeah, especially when I heard the alternatives, the Grey Vampire. And I, I saw that. I was like, dude, no, <laughs> you dodged a bullet there. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's very good with names. I, I felt like some of the names in this movie were... And the, some of the themes and some of the motifs were just a little bit on the nose. But I also feel like... Again, that's just him honing his craft because he really dives into the fairy tales after this. And with fairy tales, they are super on the nose. They're not trying to hide their messages or their morals. Like, they're very straightforward. Mm -hmm. So I don't really think that that's a problem. But I definitely clocked it. Yeah. No pun intended when I was watching this. <laughs> but, you know, it starts off with, like, the sound of ticking clocks. And it did feel a little bit too on the nose at parts. But I really liked the name that he went with and just all of the like he said so much with just the name he i'm so glad so that you brought up that you know the greek titan story of it like that was a, a really cool thing to bring to the party oh thanks <laughs> well and then there was the uh toward the end of the movie when jesus and his granddaughter aurora they have this super adorable relationship and he loves her more than anything and vice versa and she like cuts her hand and starts bleeding and at this point he has this unquenchable thirst for blood and he sees the blood on her hand and you know rather than quote unquote devouring his child he immediately decides to die instead rather than risk that happening i'm trying to think of like the significance of his name related to that trajectory of events and that storyline because essentially his name is gray jesus right so what do you make of that well what I, I guess what i made out of it is that when you think of i don't know theologian but i guess to put this simply i think of jesus and i think of an incredibly kind and compassionate 
caring, cool dude. And obviously there's the aspect of resurrection and eternal life. Right. And there's also the aspect of dying to protect. Right. You know, yeah. and, and self-sacrifice. And so what I got out of it was that you had this person who had the compassion and love and family who was given this gift slash curse of resurrection because he died and came back or was able to come back. And the long life of Jesus, if you will, but also saw what it would actually entail, like you said, with his granddaughter. Like that there that there was this part of him that was and needed to devour her to continue to live. And instead of doing that, he was able to sacrifice himself again, if you will, die again. Yeah. So that he could protect those that he loved. Yeah. And like we kind of mentioned earlier, he didn't ask for this. He was essentially infected by eternal life and infected by this device. Like that would totally happen to me or you. Like right. You would just find this thing and, and I would take touch around it. with it yeah. and then it stabs you and you're fucked. Yeah. Which is exactly what happened. He didn't ask for any of this. Yeah. And essentially it's just survival instincts like an insect. And I think his actions at the end of the movie, he's... He's separating himself from insects. Hmm. He's rejecting his insect brain. And the part of insects that make them superior. Yeah. Yeah, he's rejecting that willingly. Dude, Dude. this this movie's deep. (laughs) It's deeper than I thought. Guillermo is fucking deep. (laughs) Dude. Dude. It's good. This movie's good. I liked it. it. And I, you know, like you said, it's definitely a, and I I mean this in all due respect, and I'm really not as a negative just an observation yeah it's very much somebody's first movie oh yeah well like first good movie you know yeah. like this isn't just your, your high school directorial debut right or your you know your college festival or something like yeah. that like this is somebody's legitimate first movie that you they're gonna go on and make good shit but they're working with constraints it's their first time working doing any of this kind of stuff before and right. all of that is obvious Again, not to be insulting or anything. It yeah. is obviously a first movie. It is, yeah. And I, I don't think that's insulting at all. I think that it's a fair critique because it's a first movie and of course there's room for improvement and as we've seen, he He really He really that. improves. <laughs> and that that being said, just to kind of counter that a little bit, this movie did not do well in America. Not a surprise because people don't like to read. People don't like to read and they get mad when it's in Spanish. But in Mexico this won nine of their Oscars. Their oh no, um, shit, aerial. really? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, wow. I think it was nominated for like thirteen awards or something like that, and it won nine. And this is not the type of movie that would normally win awards. No. Like no, horror movies, like, and this type of movie is often just completely snubbed. Yeah, that's awesome. So he he knocked it out of the park. It wow. was well recepted in Mexico. That makes me so happy. And that's another thing I really like about Guillermo's movies I like the fact that especially later on you know it's it's one thing to be an inspiring director and movie maker in a foreign country yeah and to make it in that language and everything but he has time and time again after becoming well known and well respected 
stuck to his culture and stuck to his roots. Yeah. And, you know, will continue to make movies that are in Spanish and about cultures. Yeah. That I mean, that's not what the movie is about, but that's where it takes place. And he's not going to Americanize it to create a bigger and grander audience. Yes. And I really respect that. And I also really respect his... He's so authentic in everything else that he does. And I could be wrong. Like, I don't, I don't fucking know. But I feel comfortable and safe assuming that he is giving me an accurate portrayal of this culture and of these people. If that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I think it's a, a really safe place to experience somebody else's vision and dreams and stories of a culture that is different than mine. Yeah. And feel like it is being accurately conveyed. I think that's definitely fair to say. And from what I read after seeing Pan's Labyrinth for the first time, it was a general consensus that his portrayal of post-war Spain was dead on. And the same with The Devil's Backbone. I like that one. Yeah, that was great. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. I, I really... F- dead on. I feel safe in those you know environments. And I, yeah. I feel like he's really giving me an authentic view of a different culture and a different history than we're used to seeing or hearing. Definitely. Very if I can, I just want to... I'm going to get totally tangent here yeah i just didn't want to miss it because we had mentioned the fact that ron perlman's in this yeah and that he and guillermo have like a thing you know just as tim burton and johnny depp and david fincher and i get it right you did i got it right the finch Finch. david fincher and trent reznor you know like you have like these duos they get together right obviously trent reznor not an actor but you know what i mean and this was Ron Perlman and obviously with Guillermo's first movie. So this is their first movie together. And as you were mentioning, there was like major budget constraints. And the movie was supposed to have a million and a half dollar budget. Or at least is what I read. And it ended up going over budget to two million. And Guillermo had to do all of the getting the backing of this uh, extra half a million to finish the movie. And part of that required Ron Perlman getting a substantial salary cut, which he agreed to, which I thought was really cool of Ron Perlman in the first place. Yeah. And apparently, and I guess it makes sense because they became like very good friends after this point. And Ron Perlman has been in many of Guillermo del Toro's movies because they've kind of formed this bondship. And I thought... I didn't realize that it went back to the beginning and it went back to turmoil. I'm like, a need. That's so cool. You know, I thought yeah. that was, it really put a different perspective on it for me. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. I mean, sometimes actors are just good. So they're good at pulling your heartstrings no matter what. Mm-hmm. There's something about Ron Perlman where I just feel like he is such a cool dude. Yeah, totally. And maybe... I don't know. I really haven't even really seen many interviews or know much about the guy. But there's something about his presence where he just seems like such a genuinely awesome person. Yeah. I I definitely get that, too. I really feel that way about Guillermo. Like, every time I see him in an interview, he just exudes. Oh, there's no doubt about that. That's what I mean. I've seen him. He just exudes joy. Yeah. I would love to interview him. Could you imagine? I don't want to oh interview him. I just want to like you have him. I want him to show me his. Them? I want to see his want, house. Yeah, I just want him to. Sh- <laughs> I want him to show me his room. <laughs> like, I want to see interview stuff. like like what we did with Brian Kruger. Like, just ask him 
Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I would yeah. love to. I would love to interview him. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> because we're professional interviewers. Totally so good at it. <laughs> I really loved the design of the Kronos device too, the little scarab. Yes. That was badass. Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts of the movie. Me and too. like the gorgeous. internal yeah, clockwork the of what's shots. going into the thing and it's like this it's one of the nine circles of hell for bugs. <laughs> I know, that poor bug just churning away in there. <laughs> I, that was giving me major. I really fucked up. <laughs> that alchemist was. Oh man, man! I was getting major Hellboy two vibes from that thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. The the golden army stuff uh-huh. and just the overall design of it. Yeah. But did you happen to catch the alchemist's last words? I didn't. So his last words were "suo tempore," which is everything. Like my love pump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything will happen in its own time, or everything in its time. Okay, cool. Those were his last words. Just another little, just a hammer in that, that theme <laughs> home. time aspect. Yeah, and then there's the New Year's Eve party where Jesus dies. Oh, yeah. I also was reading the, like a little IBDM trivia thing on that. IMDB. I told you I'm just I always get them mixed up. It's okay. <laughs> just give me shit. It's okay. About the fact that there is a guest of the party who's dressed as a clock and it's a functioning clock and there is a clock on the wall obviously because it's counting down new years Mm -hmm. and both of them are broken or stuck in time oh wow what a trip i did not catch that no neither did i wow 18 out of 20 people found this interesting 18 out of 20 the other two were like "Eh." yeah man (laughs) (laughs) there's there's two of the same facts on there they were just written in opposite directions. So the fact was that this was like the Criterion Collection number 551. What does that mean? So there's like archivals okay. of stuff. So there's like this film collection that's like shit that's worth collecting yeah. type of thing. I honestly don't know that much, but I know that there's different collections like this. So it's number 551 in that, right? Okay. So there's the same fact and it was written number 551 in the Criterion Collection. So the first one, two out of people... people Two out of two found it interesting. The second one, zero out of two found it interesting. I'm like, why is it interesting in one direction and not in the other? I guess it just didn't flow as well. I don't know. I guess. I I just read that about it. I'm not interested anymore. I read that the original props, like the little Cronus devices, got stolen. Did you see that? Yes. That's so sad. I would think that's such a bummer, especially for the people who create it. Like, just hang out till the end and everyone gets something. Well, with how much work he put into it, because didn't he have his own, like, horror effects business that he opened to finance this movie? And Mm -hmm. it was, like, all his own shit. It was all his own shit. Who stole it? That's so fucked up. Big dicks. Yeah, so all the props that he has are replicas. That makes me so sad. It's a pretty big bummer, so, especially since it's his first so, movie, yeah, too. Yeah, and they're like, so intricate. Something, and, yeah. Yeah. Like, he had, obviously, all that stuff. And that, that production company is no longer in business. I don't know if he has another one. I would imagine he does, but maybe he was just like, fuck it, I'm over it. You gotta make it. Maybe. <laughs> Not going through that again. So, what did you make of... You said... So, we, we talked about the Great Jesus. Right. That was one name. The other one was the Guardian Angel. Mm-hmm. What what did you make of that character and that name? And That one I've been stuck on because typically you think of a guardian angel as a positive thing. And this guy is a villain. And he ends up being the one who kills Jesus the first time around, like after at the New Year's Eve party. Because he's trying to... 
get this device for his uncle, his dying uncle, so that he can get away from him because he hates being there. So that one I'm, I'm really stuck on. I, I don't know what to make of that because the, the name is throwing me off because that's typically a positive thing. But there's also his uncle's room, which is like the archangel room. And it has all of these hanging archangel statues suspended from the ceiling, which I thought was a super badass set. Really cool. But I guess I, I don't know a lot about the Bible, but from what I have heard, I think archangels can be pretty frightening and pretty dark. So I don't know if that's like supposed to be a contrast between this. What's the word I'm looking for? It's gone like a fart in the wind. It's gone. <laughs> gone. Gone. <laughs> gone. Though. I guess uh, the contrast between this almost punishing force and the mercy of gray Jesus. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of that. What do, what do you think? Well, I will say that the set, like you said, it was really cool. Are you, that in particular, that set and that character in that room mm-hmm. very much reminded me of Terry Gilliam. Oh, yeah. I could totally see that. I love the body parts and jars, too. Mm-hmm. But that was, to me, that was like another Cronenberg thing. But okay. I could see that room being a that whole, Terry Gilliam. Everything yeah. about that dude in that room and, and the jars. His demeanor and his weird quirkiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he just didn't fit. He was so no. out there. He was a strange yeah. dude. So, yeah, that, that whole thing reminded me of Terry Gilliam. And then... Yeah, I was kind of have having a hard time with that. And so I guess what I finally concluded was that when you think of a guard, because the uncle's character, or the character of the uncle, his name is the guard, right? Mm-hmm. At least in like the, the script or whatever. Okay. Yeah, he actually has a name, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But I don't know. Everybody I think he it. does, but I never really, it no, never but, stuck out to me. I didn't I mean, if you look it. it up, it's like he's as... Um, Ron Perlman is the guardian angel. The uncle is the guard. Okay. So I thought that was kind of an interesting play on words. And I was wondering what was going on with that. Like the guard and then the guardian angel. So it's like a guard for the guard almost situation. But then I was also thinking about the fact that here it was the guard is the one who's imprisoned. Right? He's like in this tomb of of, uh, isolation and like a, a, a germ bubble. And this guardian angel is there to protect him and keep him alive. But in both cases, the guard is just as imprisoned as the prisoner. And I just thought it was kind of a... Again, I don't know what to make of it, but I I just kind of was getting that that play on things of like a guard being imprisoned and what that does to a person and what the need for freedom does to a person. And you don't necessarily get the impression that Ron Perlman's character is necessarily a bad or evil person. He's not great, but he's not really, doesn't have conviction to bring about harm. Right. He's just trying to get free. And just like the lengths that humans will go to to break their bondage. Oh, I like that. And I guess I'm just, again, right out the ass pontificating here. (laughs) But I was just thinking about that bug being in its own little chamber. You almost have these two different characters. One was the bug that was in this prison that had the gift of everlasting life that was imprisoned. And you had this other character that wasn't in prison and had the tyranny and curse of dying. Because he had all these different cancers and everything. And then you had the guardian angel that was 
trying to keep the dead person alive. And you had the great Jesus that was, in a sense, keeping the scarab alive by dying. So it was like a really neat juxtaposition. It is. And again, he's just, he's such an amazing storyteller. Everything that he does is so deeply thought through. Very impressive. No, he definitely yeah. did not write this on the back of a napkin. No. no. And he's, I love how deliberate he is with all of his names too. Like even Aurora, the granddaughter, I think Aurora means dawn, right? Or sunrise. Sunrise, I think. Yeah. I really enjoyed their relationship. I thought that was very endearing and very sweet. And that kid was hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> no that doubt. Scene, it really tugged at my heartstrings after... He dies, and then they essentially have a funeral for him, and he just kind of comes wandering back in. And the, I thought that I was surprised by the humor in this whole sequence with the the mortician, yeah. and then <laughs> Ron Perlman's character Angel trying to get the body back, essentially because they were looking for the Kronos device. That whole exchange is really funny, but then Jesus wakes up on the cremation table and. Guillermo loves to do like really fucked up mouth wounds mm-hmm. in all of his movie. And the mortician had already, you know, dressed up the body. And part of what they do is they sew the mouth shut. So when he tries to open his mouth and then has to break the thing that is wiring his jaw shut, that made me cringe so fucking hard. But then when he just kind of wanders back into the little playroom where he hangs out with his granddaughter and she's like waiting there for him hiding and then she opens up her toy box like a little coffin bed for him just to let him climb it like it's so sweet and so sad yeah and she doesn't really seem afraid of him she's just kind of willing to do whatever she has to do to keep her grandpa well she's the only one that actually has any inclination of what's going on too like she saw him initially he, she was there when the bug he discovered the chronos she was there when at first like latched onto him and she was a witness when he came back like the first time he got infected it was like an owl shit and then later on like he had to get it again yeah and again it's like the symbiotic thing like he feeds off of other people's blood but the chronos feeds off of him so there was this urge to have the chronos feed off of him and it's like this symbiotic thing so she's there when he collapses on the stairs with this thing on his chest for the first time for the first like full engagement yeah and sees him in this very vulnerable very awkward position and you know is trying to tell her like hey everything's okay and it's kind of a secret between them yeah and so she's there and even to the point where she she realizes that something bad is taking place and she tries she, to she hide hides it, it first, which yeah. i thought was just the cutest thing because that's such a childlike thing to do and yeah. so it was so endearing because it reminded me of like when you you know how many people or how many kids who had somebody they actually cared about discovered that like smoking was bad the oh, first yeah. time and, and you, so you throw, them home, away. You throw them away i did i destroyed them. my parents cigarettes once and i will never forget they get so how mad. they yelled <laughs> i know but it's also like a very endearing thing like yeah. you just immediately you're like dude these are bad I'm like you're not it's such a child thing and yeah. i thought that was a really endearing thing for her to do it was and then once she realized that he needed it he need, yeah and so she was she like okay let's do what we yeah. have to do here's your little toy box coffin right so sweet <laughs> yeah i love that relationship yeah. and then it's you don't ever find out what happens to her parents but obviously it's something that was tragic and she seems a little traumatized by it like mm-hmm. she doesn't speak the only word she says is grandpa yeah, the very end of the movie. Oh. Is abuela. 
Oh my god. And it's just that really tug on my heart yeah. You know, when that's the last thing she says right before he kills himself. Oh, it's really sad. Yeah, well, on that bummer of a note, you want to yeah. rate it? <laughs> <laughs> well, real quick, I have one more thing. Sure. So, I mean, this is technically a horror movie. And I just wanted to give a shout out to the actual horror scenes in this. I thought they were particularly effective because I feel like, for the most part, this movie kind of sits outside the realm of horror. So that when the horror moments actually happen, it's that much more jarring and shocking. So like the first scene where the Cronus device actually opens up and latches onto his flesh. And then the scene, the scene that stuck out to me the most was that scene in the bathroom where he gets down on the floor and starts like lapping the blood up off the floor. Well, he starts doing it on the sink. Like yeah. He's about to do a line of coke with blood. And this dude comes over to go clean it up and like slops some on the ground. Yeah. And that's when he goes and does it. And that, that to me, that whole thing was just reminding me of, it was a great prediction of being an addict. Yeah. And like definitely. the lengths that we will go to, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a really good portrayal of that. It was. There was some really great imagery in this. And just the way that he looked after his first quote-unquote death, he actually reminded me a lot of Christopher Lee's Dracula mm. when he first mm-hmm. like reemerged from the dead. Yeah. I thought that was a cool little tribute to like the Hammer movies, which I'm sure he's a fan of. That was really cool. And I also thought the actual look of the quote-unquote vampires after their death, like when they start peeling off the skin and it's that white marbled look, that was really cool too. Yeah, I thought there was some great imagery in this. Overall, I do feel like it seemed just a little bit, I want to say incomplete. And I feel like it's not fair to compare it to his other movies because it is his first movie, but it did feel just a little bit incomplete to me. And I don't know if that was the character development or, or what it was really. It just felt like a little piece was missing. But overall, I thought it was a solid first movie and a really cool take on vampires. And again, like I said, just getting back to the roots of what makes vampires so grotesque and compelling as a horror creature. So what would you rate Kronos? Well, I've already given my reasons why. I'm just going to get down to it. I'm going to give it an 8. You're going to give it an 8? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at. I was torn between an 8 and an 8.5. I think after talking about it and really getting into the themes and the symbolism and just Guillermo del Toro as a director and what he puts into his work, even though I wasn't super crazy about this movie, I really enjoyed it. And I think it has a lot going for it. And again, you really just see the seeds of his greatness in this. So I think I think I'm gonna have to go with eight and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Out of twelve. Fair. I liked it. It was good. Yeah, I think it's yeah. worth watching. I, Absolutely. I, I, I yeah. definitely not my favorite movie of his. The old vampire movie, so it's got that going. <laughs> and it's like no matter what he does, he always has my full attention. Always. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. It's on uh, HBO Max right now. It's streaming on there. I check it out. It's good. Yeah, give it a go. What else you got going on? Yeah, and it's. It has, like, a huge cult status. Check it out. People fucking like that. Watch it. it. Yeah, watch it. If you haven't watched it for a while, go watch it again. (laughs) Yeah, it's good. This seems like a movie that would reward a second watch, too. The only thing is I just don't... I'm not in a huge hurry to watch it again. Yeah. It'll be a while. Yeah, it'll be a while. (laughs) All right, so we get to the beer pairing. Indeed. This is going to be like this movie was, just a little on the nose. But I think that this (laughs) movie... I think that... 
this would pair well with a brown, where it's it's good, it's tasty, but something's missing. Just a little something is missing. Yeah. But, I mean, pair it with your favorite brown, or if you're looking for something specifically to go with this movie, I found one from the Phantom Carriage Brewing Company, and it's called a Kronos Brown Ale. A little on the nose. A little on the nose, right? But probably works just fine. Probably just fine. Or a Newcastle would be fine, too. Or a black or and tan. Or a Mississippi mud, which yeah. tastes like a brown. It's like three bucks. Three bucks for a quart. Yeah. A quart of beer. That thing is... I want to take a picture of that for it Instagram. Just, I was it's pouring it between the comically, two glasses and it just kept yeah. on going. It's comically large. The bottle's really cool. It is. I like the bottle quite a bit. If we didn't have so much clutter, I'd be tempted to keep it, but we, no. can't, we can't do it. All right. Well, that was my pick. What is we watching next? We is watching... I'm going to give you a guess, just for fun. I want you to guess what we're watching next. <laughs> give me a hint. Uh, I'm obsessed with it. You're obs- oh, are we? Oh, I know what it is. You know what it is? Yeah. What is it? You want me to say it? I want you to say it. Black Coast Daughter? We are doing the motherfucking Black Coast Daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I've been planning on doing this movie in February for a long time because the original title of the Black Coast Daughter was February. Wow, way to play the long game. Yeah, I have been sitting on this one for a long time. So for our my February pick, we will be covering The Black Coat's Daughter, directed by Oz Perkins. And I am obsessed with it. Indeed you are. I cannot wait to cover this movie. And <laughs> I can't wait to watch this for the fifth fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> now you're going to have to like really, really watch it with a critical eye and dissect yeah. it. And then we're going to talk about it for like an hour and a half. And it's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love this movie. If you haven't seen this movie... I can't guarantee that you'll love it, but I think it's fucking awesome, and it is on Netflix. So, Do you love horror? Do you love Satan? You might love this movie. We haven't done a Satan one in a while. I'm excited. It's been a while. It's been a while. What was the last one? Was it Ninth Gate? <sighs> I think it was Ninth Gate, yeah. But yeah, check it out. It's awesome. It's a, a bit of a slow burn, but very atmospheric, very spooky, and I just love it so much. I well, can't wait. Let's get into it. We are going to get into it. I was wondering when you were going to pick that. I, I was, was surprised waiting. it took so long. I was waiting until February. Wow, I don't know if you've ever played such a long game in your life. I was sitting on it. Like, it has to be in February. <laughs> well done. I'm impressed. Thank you. All right. Well, this has been fun. It has been fun. And you all know the drill. If you get a chance, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. And if you want to just shoot the shit with us, or you have movie or beer suggestions... I want to emphasize the movie suggestions, too, because right now we're taking turns going back and forth, just picking what we want to watch. If there's something that you guys want us to cover, send us an email and we will cover it. Yeah, we'll that's do a it. bitching idea. And I would really yeah. appreciate that because it gets hard, it's hard to, to pick, pick sometimes. Out. Yeah. So if there's a movie that you guys have been just like waiting for us to pick and you're bummed every time we don't. Yeah, fucking tell us. Tell us and we will do it. Squeaky will gets the grease. Yeah, we will do it for you. So if you would like to do that, you can send us a message on Instagram if you'd like. It's Blood, Fear, and Beer Podcast. Or you can email us at bloodfearandbeer at gmail.com. Or you can send a carrier pigeon and hope they find us. That'd be so rad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you can send a hawk, it would be a lot cooler. But yeah, I'll take a pigeon. I will take a pigeon. That'd be great. All right. Well, you guys have been awesome. This has been blood, fear, and beer. And until next time, keep it spooky. Cheers.